their lives. We have been, over these past uh, several weeks, going through the book of Acts. The story of the book of Acts is about the origins of Christianity. Whenever you go to origins, those first stories, you learn something about what's genuine or real or true about a thing. That's one of the principles of investigation. The further back you can go, the closer you get to the source, the closer you get to the truth of a thing. And so that's kind of the question we're going to look at this morning. What is it that authentic, original Christianity looked like? I mean, it's kind of an important question, isn't it? What is it that Christianity looks like? What's real about it? I've talked to lots of people in the GTA, and so have you who have rejected or somehow put themselves at arm's length to matters of faith because of what I would suggest is a misunderstanding of real Christianity. Or even more tragically, I've met, and, and you have, or, or maybe they're in your own family, met those who believe that at one point in their life they were Christians, at least to some extent. They tried it, but it didn't work. The people who say, I... I used to be a Christian, I'd want to ask, well, what, what kind of Christianity was it? Uh, was it the real thing, or was it someone else's that was foisted upon you? Uh, of course, many of you gathered here today, your entire self-understanding is wrapped around that language. You are a follower of Jesus. You're a Christian because you're a Christian. You, you live in certain ways, and you believe certain things, and all of that, but but even for us here together, I think it's important to ask that question. What does it mean really to be a Christ follower? Now, if you ask that question every day, what does it mean to be a Christian? It'll drive you nuts. But on the other hand, if, if you never ask it, it's not a healthy thing either. Here's another thing to keep in mind. People say, well, listen, I, I know what a real Christian is. A real Christian is somebody who who believes a certain set of ideas, you'll find this in your notes, what's real Christianity. They believe a certain set of things. Uh, they, they live a certain kind of life. They, they're loving, generous people. They obey the Ten Commandments, all that stuff. They go to church. I mean, curiously and counterculturally, they get up early on Sunday mornings and they come to places like this. That's what it means to be a Christian. Is it? Philosophers, here you are again, Job. Philosophers talk about the difference between necessary and sufficient signs. What's the difference? Let me give you an example. Maybe it makes it clearest. Imagine you live in a country where all doctors, physicians, are required by law to wear a white coat. Right? Now, anybody else in that society, fashion people, Suki, for example, are free to wear a white coat if they want. But doctors are required to wear white coats. Wearing a white coat would be a necessary but not a sufficient condition that you were a doctor. In other words, if you're a doctor, you must wear a white coat. But just because you're wearing a white coat, it doesn't mean you're a doctor. Right. Boy, a bunch of philosophers in the room this morning, Tim. The fact is, yes, to be a Christian, there are certain things that you believe. But in the little book of James, if you remember those of us who worked through that book in our small group series last year, the little book of James in the New Testament makes this interesting point. Even demons believe 
Lots of the right things. They believe there's a triune God. They believe Jesus was the Son of God on earth. They believe in the reality of the crucifixion. They believe all of that. Probably at times they believe it more than you and me. But that doesn't make them Christian. Far from it. It's a necessary but not a sufficient condition. Of course, Christians, we would like to think, lead a good life. Paul was adamant about that. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. You ought to be able to look at my life and see something different. But again... There are lots of people who live good lives, a necessary but not a sufficient condition. If you're a Christian, you ought to be linked somehow to the church. It is, after all, the body of Christ. Years ago, a preacher was talking about a lapsed member. member said, I'm a Christian. I know that. Years ago, I joined the church. And the preacher responded, says, look at these pews. Imagine pews, not chairs. He says, look at these pews. They're joined to the church, too. In fact, they're nailed here, but they're not going anywhere. (laughs) A necessary, but not a sufficient sign. What I'd like to do with you this morning is give you four indicators, four marks of real Christianity. These are relatively unique signs, and they go all the way back to the beginning. They're rooted in the story of God's people in the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 4 this morning. Chapter 4, verse 23, you're welcome to follow along with me as we read together. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people, and they reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. And the believers were of one heart and mind, No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in all of them that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, also sold a field that he owned and brought the money and put it there at the apostles' feet. You pray with me. God, in, in the gift of the Scriptures, through your words, we come to know your character. Come to know your life and 
and your ambitions and your will and your purpose. And, and all of those things are important to us. They that not only inform the lives that we live, the decisions that we make, but but they shape us to be the people that you call us to be. So through the work of your Spirit and the gift of your Word, be present among us this morning, we pray. Amen. Acts chapter 4 is a turning point. There's going to be several of them in the book of Acts as we make our way through. But this is where things begin to change. And in some ways, they begin to sour for the early church. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, everything is going well for Christians. It says uh, that they enjoyed the favor of all the people. These were good times. Acts chapter 2, the first sermon is preached. 2,000 people responded and gave their lives. The second sermon, 3,000 people respond. They're going from strength to strength. And then you get to chapter 4, verse 23. On the release, Peter and John went back to their people. They reported all the chief priests and elders had said to them, Remember last week, Peter and John were arrested. Their lives were threatened. This is what they reported. You must not preach Christianity anymore. That's what they were told. Starting in chapter 4, Christians know that the road ahead from here on is going to be perilous, arduous, dangerous. For the first time, you see the young church facing persecution and suffering, and some are going to die, and they know it. Their response to that new reality is what really should be noteworthy. Let me take us on a long journey back. Uh, I don't know how many of you were here during the year we we made our traversal through the Scriptures from cover to cover over the course of a year. Do you remember the Sunday we spent in the book of Job? Any of you? The Old Testament book of Job is about a guy who loses everything. Loses all of his money, his family, he loses most of his health. And throughout the whole book, 40 chapters of it, all he does is yell and cry and question, why? Why, God? Why me? He argues with God, he shakes his fist, and as you're reading through it, you just have this feeling that he's about to come unglued. I mean, he's about two verses away from being committed to the ancient equivalent of the mental asylum. He's not doing well. And then at the end, God shows up vindicates him, says, Job, you've done a good job. He affirms him, rewards him, heals him, castigates all of his friends who gave some of the worst pastoral care you can possibly imagine. And you read the book and you say, what? The way to understand the book of Job, the key to it is to go back to the very beginning where God and Satan are having this disagreement. The very beginning of the book God says, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on earth. Wouldn't it be something to have God brag about you? There's none like him. Consider Job. And Satan comes back and accuses Job. He says, but does he fear you for nothing? I mean, does he honor you for no reason? Or is there something in it for him? Job obeys you, doesn't he, Lord? Because of all the benefits he's getting. Not a true servant, not a real worshiper, a consumer. He's doing business with you, God. As long as he's getting enough benefits at low cost, he'll be yours. If you raise the cost, he'll turn away. Get a sense of the argument? He's not loving you for your own sake. He's really serving himself by serving you. 
It's really about what's in it for him. If suffering comes into his life, you'll see. You'll see. He'll turn from you. Years ago, an Old Testament professor kind of unlocked the understanding of the book when he said, you know why at the end, in spite of all Job's ranting and raving, God still vindicates him? Do you know why? During the whole book, he's just carrying on and he's angry and arguing and shaking his fist. But it means that suffering didn't drive him away from God. It never stopped him from talking to God. It only ever intensified his prayer life. It drove him closer. It turns out Satan was right. I mean, he wasn't right about Job. But he was right in that true servants serve God for nothing. They serve God for God. Not because of what they're getting out of it. Times of suffering in life, you get to see whether your relationship with God is based on your desire to serve or to be served. Whether you go into the relationship to honor Him and respond in love and gratitude to who He is and what He's already done in your life. Or whether it's a little more self-serving than that. In a way, it's harder to tell about the strength and the depth and the authenticity of your faith, about real Christianity, when everything in your world is going well. Don't go home and pray for a season of suffering. It will surely come. Right? But Look at these people in Acts chapter 4. Some of them know they're going to die. What is it they say? Verse 24, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer. Aha! Just like Job, right? What good is God in my life if this sort of thing is going to happen? But instead of walking away from God, they go towards God and they pray. And what do they pray for? More importantly, notice what they don't pray for. They don't pray for a change in circumstance. God, Jamaica sounds nice. No persecution there. They don't pray for protection even. God, some impenetrable armor would be handy about now. They don't pray for vengeance on people. Lord, Strike them down in a mighty display of your wrath. No, all they pray for, you can see it down in verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Verse 30, an extension. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. In other words, what they're really saying, Lord, is just give us the courage to keep on changing lives. Give us the strength to continue to impact people's lives. Look, there's nothing wrong with praying for your needs from time to time. Jesus put it right there in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. That's a prayer for needs. But notice here, as the disciples are gathered, that's not where they go. You know why? The primary reason they're in relationship with God. This is a mark of true Christianity. When your life is going well or when your life is filled with pain, you're honoring and you're serving God with consistency. It's the mark of true Christianity. You've had people say to you, and so have I, I used to believe in God and then all these awful things began to happen in my life and I just gave up and said, I I can't believe in a God who would let things like that happen To me, it's a telling statement, isn't it? And it's certainly understandable. But it also speaks to a faith that just simply 
evaporates when the benefits are gone. I know that sounds harsh, but think about it for just a minute. What if you had money and you had health and, and you had connections and, and you had a close friend who enjoyed sharing all of those things with you? You go places together. You, you have lots, lots and lots of these great memories and experiences. But, but then crisis hit and you lost your money and your health and your connections disappeared and, and that friend just dropped you like a hot potato. What would you say? Wouldn't you be thinking, he didn't love me? She didn't really love me at all? They were just in it for the benefits. If people treated you that way, wouldn't you be indignant? And you'd be right. Be careful not to treat God that way. The first mark of real Christianity is that you love and serve God consistently. For richer, for poorer. For better, for worse in sickness, and in health. Here's the second mark. Mark of being a real Christian is that you know God. That sounds simple. Stupid. Not just that you know about God, that you know God. John 17, verse uh, verse 3. Now this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God and Jesus whom you've sent in your name. To know God is something altogether different than knowing about God. Remember the demons? They knew lots of things about God, more than you and I probably ever will. That's not what makes you a real Christian. The word know, when you see it in the Bible, is a relationship word. It's not a cognitive word. not about the accumulation of knowledge. It's about the cultivation of of relationship. For this reason, a, a man shall know his wife. Again, that's not just to be successful at playing the dating game. That's, that's an indication of relationship. To know God means personal relationship. Think about both words. Think first about the personal part. This is, this is kind of easier to describe than it is to define. So let me, let me have you think with me about two categories of people for whom this is a problem. One group is people who've been raised in the church, raised in a Christian family. Maybe for a time they thought they were Christian as well. They went through all of the motions. They felt they believed. There was a certain amount of faith. At least they thought there was. And then they went off to college. It all began to seem unreal. It started to unwind. And eventually they came out completely disinterested. They want nothing to do with it. It was unreal to them. That's one group. Another category is, is people who maybe in college or in the workplace get caught up in some sort of Christian fellowship. A trendy church, a gathering, they've got it going on. The students are smart and they're joyful and, and they're thankful. And, and this person gets connected and they, they begin to think, if that's what Christianity is like, maybe I want it too. And so, and so they begin attending and they take on some of it. But they move away from the campus and, and then they start their careers and their family and it all just kind of goes away doesn't feel real anymore. No interest. What's going on? Could the answer be this? Is it possible to have a second-hand experience of God? To live off of other people's enthusiasm? I wonder sometimes if 
if that's not why we see so much of the circulation of the saints, people going to the brightest spot of the church landscape in order to capitalize on the enthusiasm of other people's faith. They're having a great time. I want to have a great time. I'm going to go be with them. They're smart. I want to be smart. I'm going to act like them. You can, you can live off that for a time. Can't you? I mean, is it possible really to have kind of a surrogate faith? The faith of a parent or a colleague or a gathering. But then when you come away and you do that deep searching, you realize, you know what? I, I don't think I ever really met God. I don't think it's personal for me. That's a problem. It's a, it's a pretty big problem. Let me put it like this. There's a world of difference between knowing that Jesus died or even that He died for us, for the whole world, and believing He died for me. That's a profound difference. I know that Jesus died for the world. But when I realized that He died for me, that He had to die for me, that He did die for me, it's hard to get past that. Suddenly there's a personal connection. Do you have one? Personal relationship? It's not only personal, it is a relationship. A relationship always has to be two ways. If it's not two ways, it can be lots of different things, but it's not a relationship. There's lots of people in this country, the number is something like 80% of people who pray. When you ask them, what is it that you pray? Even those who pray pretty regularly, when they ask them what they pray about, they pray about their needs. Of course, that's the way that you pray. God, help me with this. God, can you get that? God, can you deal with this situation? That's not really a relationship. That's just talking. It's like a grocery list. Giving God the honeydew list for the week. You're not talking about Him, you're talking about yourself. That's not personal. You have a personal relationship with Grocery Gateway or Amazon? Because that's how you're treating him. If all you're ever saying is, God, bring me this, bring me that, God becomes the divine equivalent of grocery gateway in the sky, and it's not personal and it's not real. And I, I guarantee you the folks on the other side of the grocery gateway website are not interested whatsoever in having a personal relationship with you. Eugene Peterson, remarkable writer, wrote an amazing book years ago called Answering God. He points out something. He says that prayer isn't really talking to God. Prayer is mainly answering God. Now, what does that mean? Think about how you learn to talk. Well, none of us really remember. Think about how your children, your grandchildren, learned to talk. If nobody had spoken to you first, you would have grown up just babbling and groaning and mumbling. The only way a child learns to talk is if somebody talks to them first. We're told to enrich the lives of kids by placing lots of conversation around them. That's how they learn. The way they speak is because other people spoke to them first. It's exactly the same when it comes to knowing God. God speaks. He spoke first. He reveals Himself, and He's still revealing Himself. It happens profoundly in His Word. Think about this for a second. Imagine somebody sits down with you, and over the course of half an hour across a coffee table, they pour out their life story, this amazing personal story, poignant, wise, fascinating, moving. They're saying, this is who I am. These are the experiences of life that have made me all that. And then when you finally open your mouth for the next five or ten minutes, 
The only thing you talk about is what you need. Never mention anything or relate anything to what has just been revealed. The reason why Peterson said prayer is not so much about talking as answering is that God has already told the story of who He is. Prayer is an invitation to respond. He's revealed a huge number of things about Himself. He's poured out His heart as we see. When you open your mouth to pray, you ought to be basing part of what you say on this, on responding to this. That's exactly what we see in Acts chapter 4. Have a closer look. They're not just talking to God, they're answering God. They have a personal relationship. Look what they do. First of all, they say, Sovereign Lord. Why do they call Him Sovereign Lord? Because they're responding to what God has already said about Himself. They go on to quote Psalm 2. This is where they learned that about God. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do nations rage, prophets plot, kings of the earth rise up, rulers band together against the Lord and His anointed one? The world felt out of control then. It did now for the disciples. And yet they call Him Sovereign Lord. Why? Verse 28. Because what your power and will decided beforehand will happen. What are they doing? They're scared, right? But they don't just say we're scared. Zap us with some courage. They don't say we're anxious. Hit me with some inner peace. No, what do they do? They strategically take one of the things that God has told us about Himself. They take one of His attributes. Wisdom, goodness, control, whatever it is. They take this attribute, His sovereignty, which is the antithesis to fear. And they talk to Him about who He is, and as a result, they're healing their own hearts. That's knowing God. That's not just treating God like a big vending machine up in the sky. They're responding to what he said. It's, it's two-way communication, and it's transforming. And let me just say that you know that in order to do this, you have to know a little bit about what God says about himself. That's why we spent the whole year last year tracking all the way through the big story of God's revelation in Scripture. It means that you have to know a little bit about the Bible. It's one of the places we see God speaking. In order for you to pray and answer to His revelation, you have to know what He's revealed. Look at it here. Again, in Acts chapter 4. This is brilliant spirituality. It's just it's biblical spirituality. Verses 27 and 28, talking about Jesus' crucifixion. Your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, was put to death. Verse 28, it says... They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Listen to what they're saying. Lord, what a horrible, horrible thing happened here. And Jesus was killed. But we realized that if He hadn't been killed, we wouldn't know You. That there is this massive, brilliant goodness that came out of a terrible thing. So when it looks like awful things are going to happen, we're going to remember this about you. We're going to remember that this is who you are. We're not going to be afraid of the future. You know, it's most ironic about this prayer. It's just so God-centered. It's not me-centered. It's all about God. You're this, you're this, you're this. And, and here's what's ironic. 
if you're looking at yourself instead of God saying, I need this, I need this, I need that, you're probably not going to get all your needs met. But if you look at God instead of your needs, your needs have a way of getting met in the process. Aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and chances are you get neither. That makes some sense? Marks of real Christianity. First, you serve God consistently. Second, you know God personally, deliberately. Third and fourth are really fast, but they're important. Third is that you experience God periodically. Uh, Let me say a word about that, because that's strange language. You experience God periodically. This is a comforting and frustrating truth. Verse 31, they prayed. The place they were meeting was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. When the book of Acts says that God's people are filled with the Holy Spirit, if you look carefully, it doesn't mean that the moment before that happened, they were riddled with sin and devoid of God. That's one of the problems with the metaphor, isn't it? To be filled with the Holy Spirit is that it's easy to imply that a second before they were empty. That's not the case. What does it mean to be filled with the abundant presence of God, with the Holy Spirit? We talked about this a couple of months ago around Pentecost, but... Here's the brief refresh. When Jesus said he was going to send the Spirit, send the Comforter, John 16, he said the Spirit will manifest himself to you. And he will take the things that I've said and done and make them real. He will take the things you know in your head and make them real to the rest of your being. The ministry of the Spirit is kind of like a spotlight ministry. Imagine you're walking around... uh, Uh, late at night on a darkened urban street, and you come around the corner, and there you see, under brilliantly lit spotlights, a spectacular building, cast in brilliant relief, architecture, beautiful. What you notice first and and best is, is the building itself, its character, its form, its Its beauty you probably pay no attention to the floodlights that are lighting it. In fact, you might not notice them at all. The Holy Spirit is not in your life in order for you to say, I have the Holy Spirit. It's in your life to make Jesus more beautiful, more real than he was the moment before. That's what happens when the Spirit comes into the life of a person in a church. He takes what you know and makes it real. If it's his power and sovereignty, then then you're not afraid. If it's his love that becomes real, then you're not riddled with guilt and shame anymore. That's what the fullness of the Spirit does. It's it's a heightening or or a brightening. What I love about this is it's a reminder that you're not always going to be walking around on an emotional high. One minute they weren't filled with the Holy Spirit, and and then they were. And this seemed to happen sometimes in cycles. You can't expect always to be walking around on an emotional, spiritual high. If you do, you're going to be disappointed. What makes you Christian is Christ's work in your life, not the emotional state of your inner life. That's not what gives you a relationship with God. We are here by grace and that alone, not based on how you feel. Those things are going to change. But those occasional experiences that we have, those mountaintop moments, they show you what's possible. 
They show you what's available. You don't live on emotion, but they remind you of what's available and they make you hungry. Be a real Christian, serve God consistently, know God deliberately. You experience God periodically. One more thing, really fast, because I think Pastor Sheldon's going to get into it a little bit more next week. You should be exhibiting God generously. You notice how in verse 31 it says Christians were filled with boldness. The very next verse 32 says they started giving their money away like crazy. Don't you think there's a connection there? I mean, one of the reasons that that people aren't generous is certainly materialism and greed, but here's another reason. We're afraid. We're afraid. We're afraid if we give it away, there won't be enough left for us. When God is real to you, you don't look at your savings and your things and your investments like they're your primary source of security and safety in the world. When God is unreal, your money seems more real. When God is real, it somehow seems less important. One of the marks of real Christianity is you become radically generous, increasing as the years go by. There's, there's the four marks. Just a minute, we're going to pray. Before we do that, I, I want you to think about where they come from, these four things. Have one last look at verse 31, because it's really the climax of the whole thing. After they prayed, the place they were meeting was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. In your Bibles, underline, highlight, asterisk, the word shaken. The Bible, when God shows up, the world shakes. When God appears to Moses, says the mountains trembled, they almost shook apart. In Isaiah, the presence of God shows up. And as God goes into the temple, he sees the Holy One. It says the, the thresholds shook. Deborah in Judges 5 sings her famous song, O Lord, when you marched out, the earth shook. Why is that? The image of shaking. An earthquake it's when something of substance and reality comes into contact with something less that cannot bear it. The point of the earthquake is that whenever God comes down, whenever He comes down, the, the glory and the holiness, the greatness of God is such that the earth cannot bear it. And that's why things practically come apart. Moses says, can I see your glory? God says, no, it'll kill you. It'll shake you apart. God appears to Isaiah. The first thing out of his mouth is says, I'm undone, I'm coming apart in the presence of God. The holiness is too great. We'd be shaken apart. Here's the amazing thing about Acts 4. Take this with me to prayer in just a minute. The presence of God comes down on these Christians and they experience the power and sovereignty and beauty of God in such a way that makes them bold and fearless. The place was shaken, but they were not they actually became unshakable. The place was shaken. Christians became unshakable. Jesus, through His Spirit, says to His people, on the cross I was shaken to pieces so that you could become undeterred. Unshakable. Guilt and shame, I took care of it. Fear, anxiety, fear of the future, I guarantee it. It's what C.S. Lewis called the deep magic. 
That's why Job, in spite of all of his ranting and raving, stayed true to God and said, For I know that my Redeemer lives. He was shaken to pieces so that when He comes into your life, it makes you this unshakable rock. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for giving us this this survey of, of what Christianity looked like in those days long ago. We pray that You'd help us understand where we stand Some of us here today are coming to the conclusion that there might be something missing. That we've been relying too much on ourselves, our own works, and not on the shaking, the the dying, the, the mercy and grace of Jesus. Some of us are coming to realize we're not being very consistent, or we're not being very generous, or we're not being very deliberate in our knowledge of You. Help us, Lord, whatever it is, You experience more and more real Christianity. We want it in our churches. We want it in our families. We want it in our lives so that we, like the apostles, these disciples, like Jesus Himself, can live unshakable lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.